1: In the hazy past of the pre-internet era, there existed a certain artifact that could be found among the possessions of millions of men and some women around the globe. Tucked between mattresses and box springs, stashed in shoeboxes on high shelves in cluttered garages, or proudly displayed in stacks on the backs of porcelain thrones. Costing just a few dollars apiece, these mythic relics contained all the mysteries of sex, style, and masculine success. And yet their tawdry nature made them both admired and reviled. I'm talking, of course, about nudie mags. Glossy paged periodicals full to the brim with boobs and butts in every state of objectification imaginable. It may be hard for some of you to fathom a world where people used to buy physical copies of porn. Surely the embarrassment alone of getting recognized, leaving a store with a copy of Busty Coeds 5 in hand would preclude that, no? But believe it or not, there was a time when magazines with naked women in them were more than just sticky forbidden treasure to be passed around in groups of horny teenage boys. In their heyday, the leading publishers didn't just print smut. They built nightclubs, dabbled in Hollywood, and dove headfirst into the major social issues of the time, the least surprising of which being censorship and free speech. There have been claims, and counterclaims, of the empowerment that came with having women bear it all. And the most popular pornographer of them all took credit for kickstarting the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. But whether it was thrusting the progressive movement forward, or just along for the ride, the adult magazine industry underwent a monumental shift of its own, right at a major turning point in American culture. This change was predicated on the question of how far you could go While still maintaining some semblance of respectability in the mainstream. And it resulted in a war, albeit the quietest war you've never heard of, all over that little fluffy patch of hair that we all have downstairs. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is Beef. Now, gird your loins as we enter into the pubic wars. Robert Charles Joseph Edward Sabatini Guccione, or Bob to his friends, was born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1930. Raised in Bergenfield, New Jersey by first-generation Sicilian Americans, Bob was the eldest of three children in a house full of love. The only boy, his parents showered him with affection, and at one point, he seemed destined for the priesthood. But Guccione only lasted a few months in seminary before he found out about that whole vow of celibacy thing. That was a big problem for Bob. So instead of the church, at 18, he went the route of the starving artist. He always wanted to be a painter, and with little financial assistance from his parents, he was at one point exclusively dating girls who worked in restaurants so he could get free food. That's how Bob met his first wife, Lillian, who he got pregnant before actually marrying. The two moved to Europe to pursue Bob's bohemian dreams of following in the footsteps of his creative heroes from the lost generation. The next five years of bumming around Italy, Spain, and France without selling a single painting was enough to send Lillian and their daughter running, though. So Bob headed to North Africa to smoke weed, play chess, and hang out with writer William S. Burroughs. There, he met his second wife, British cabaret singer Muriel Hudson, and in 1956, they married and moved to London. The extravagant adventures of his life could have ended there in a small Chelsea rental, surrounded by three more children, But managing a dry cleaning business that paid poverty wages was not the life that Bob imagined for a darkly handsome man such as himself, whose love of spray tanning and large gaudy medallions and necklaces would eventually become a trademark. So Bob started submitting cartoons and funny articles to a failing weekly magazine called The London American and eventually became an editor. The thing is, the content that Guccione wanted to print was a little mm, on the raunchy side. After all, His wife at the time, Muriel, did already have a side business selling pictures of pinup girls in various stages of undress. A fellow editor once raised some concerns about brushing up against England's censorship laws by yelling, we can't put tits and arse on the front page, we'll all end up in the nick. But Bob couldn't help himself. His own lascivious proclivities aside, he'd just seen something that would change his entire world. It was a men's magazine called Playboy. Hugh Hefner is arguably the most well-known merchant of sleaze in the history of the world.
3: A lot of people know about the grotto and the game room. Of course. But few know about the laboratory, the biosphere, the alternative energy research center.
1: Fascinating. Born in Chicago in 1926, he claimed to be a direct descendant of the Puritans who came over on the Mayflower. Unlike Bob Guccione's happy home, Hugh's family never hugged, danced, drank, or cursed. And he once said, I was always looking for that love denied me early in childhood. Like Guccione, though, he also seemed to be headed toward the church until he met Mildred Williams, his soon-to-be first wife, at a party right after graduating high school. The two stayed in touch while Hefner served as a non-combatant for two years at the end of World War II. But right before the wedding, a shocking revelation came to light. Mildred had had an affair while Hugh was in the army. He forgave her and agreed to go ahead with the marriage. But, just like the story he would eventually tell Time magazine about his first childhood sweetheart, Becky, dumping him for another guy, Mildred's betrayal would forever shape how Hefner saw himself and women. He loves them, he adores them, but there's that little edge of sort of keeping an eye open at the same time, his biographer Stephen Watts once said. Others have a far dimmer view of Hugh's attitudes toward women. I think at the end of the day,
3: Hefner turns out to be a real heel, because Hugh Hefner hated women, and Bob Guccione loved women, and that's
1: that's a fundamental difference. That's Mike Edison. He's a writer, editor, and musician who's contributed to High Times, Huffington Post, The Daily Beast, Spin Magazine, and New York Press. He's also the former editor-in-chief of Screw, a contemporary of Penthouse and Playboy, and he wrote the book Dirty, Dirty, Dirty of Playboys, Pigs, and Penthouse Poppers, an American tale of sex and wonder.
3: I had him as a villain, and I think I was the first one to do it and to go past this smoking jacket, suave, artificial veneer and find out that the guy really hated women. He had no feminist bona fides, despite whatever he claimed and his other liberal politics. Hefner, you know, you know he's, he's not a baby boomer. He's like from the silent generation. He's, it was, he's like the, from the big band era. You know? This is like pre-rock and roll. There's not a rock and roll molecule for his body. You know, he's like all about 23 Skidoo and, um, that's kind of like his sensibility that uh, he brought to all, all of this. When we start talking about Bob Guccione, he was only a few years younger, but that was enough time, in you know, in a rapidly accelerating culture, for a culture shift where Bob, you know, was more of the 70s, and Kefner was more of the 50s, even though they're only four years apart in age. There's a bitterness and a way of of putting women down, of really, and, and if you look especially later in Playboy, it just kept continuing reinforcing every negative stereotype about women imaginable like when they got to the you know tv level you know and and doing his tv show they're they're basically inflatable women and they're all a bunch of bimbos and that and, and it's sad because you know this is a time when hopefully we move past this and sexuality is supposed to live between the ears as much as it lives between the thighs and he's having no part of that for him it's just very very this is it. Naked girl. Wow. I, I don't think that because you publish a magazine filled with you know, naked girls, you're, that makes you a bad person. But certainly there are lots of people who have done that and do do that, who do make pornography, who are bad people, who, who are, are abusive towards women, who are abusive towards uh, everybody. Everybody around them are, are, are very troubled you know, people in, in general and should not be in this business and probably should
1: be in fucking jail, frankly. By the early 1950s, Hugh got a job as a copywriter for the men's magazine Esquire, working under editor Arnold Genrich, inventor of the centerfold layout that would become so emblematic of skin mags. But Hugh wasn't happy. He was dissatisfied with the definition of masculinity that he saw depicted in the men's magazines of the day, which focused mainly on outdoor adventuring. He wanted to cater to a more modern, genteel intellectual who liked discussing art, philosophy, and sex over mixed drinks and smooth jazz. So Hugh quit Esquire and then struck out on his own. He already had some publishing success when he wrote and illustrated a popular short book called That Toddlin' Town, which included a bunch of dirty cartoons and jokes about the Chicago social scene. And in 1953, he decided to go all in on himself, creating a magazine called Stag Party. Somewhat ironically, given the greater conflict to come, there already was a magazine called Stag, whose logo looked suspiciously similar to the drawing of a male deer the newer publication put on its cover. Stag threatened a lawsuit, and Hefner's rag quickly switched its name to Playboy, which he took from a car company that had gone out of business because he thought it sounded highbrow. The logo transformed into a bunny in a tuxedo that Hugh later said that he chose because it was quote-unquote frisky and playful, and had a, quote-unquote, humorous sexual connotation. The first issue consisted mostly of some editorial content written by Hugh and stories from writers like Ambrose Pierce that were old enough to be in the public domain. But the centerpiece was a series of nude pictures of none other than the original blonde bombshell Marilyn Monroe. Now you're probably asking, why one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time would agree to pose naked for some two-bit flesh peddler just getting his operation off the ground. After all, that was the same year she co-starred in the hit comedies Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire, two of the highest grossing movies in 1953. Well, the answer is, she never agreed to be in Playboy at all. Four years earlier, before her big break, Monroe was jobless and desperate for cash to cover a $50 car payment. So she agreed to do a shoot with a pinup photographer who swore he would make her face unrecognizable in the pictures. In fact, she was so embarrassed that she signed her name, Mona Monroe, in an attempt to protect her identity. The photos were then sold to a calendar company, which Hefner bought the rights from for $500. He never paid Monroe anything directly, nor did he ask her permission. That first issue, which cost 50 cents a piece, sold 52,000 copies. Over the next few years, Playboy's brand exploded. Hefner maintained his pretenses of being a curator of cultural refinement by paying well for good writing. For example, science fiction writer Ray Bradbury's seminal work on censorship and fascism, Fahrenheit 451, didn't reach national attention until a year after it was first published, when Playboy serialized it. Hefner's editorials also contained very forward-thinking views about sexuality, inspired by his interest in the research of Alfred Kinsey. Though, oddly enough, in many of the early issues, Hefner's playmates' nipples were covered, and their innocent, quote-unquote, girl-next-door looks were captured in a way that was straightforward rather than sensual. But by 1959, business was booming. The magazine reported monthly sales of over a million copies, and fresh off his divorce from Mildred, Hefner was reinventing himself. He started smoking a pipe and donned his iconic silk pajamas and smoking jacket. He bought a Mercedes and the first iteration of the Playboy Mansion. He opened the first Playboy Club and began hosting a syndicated TV show, notably titled Playboy's Penthouse. He became Hef. I sense a, uh, a change in the times and ability to discuss things more openly on TV and movies. Meanwhile, Hefner's former bosses at Esquire were kicking themselves to death as they had pivoted away from sex, only to face severely lagging sales. Playboy had out-titted us, one former editor told Rolling Stone. Carrie Pizzullo is a former researcher and professor of gender and sexuality in American history. She says that what Hefner did wasn't necessarily new, but Playboy did benefit from his timing and execution.
2: You know, we can go back to, you know, ancient mosaics and see sexually explicit images portrayed. Modern people have not invented sex. In, in fact, the early 20th century has been described as the first American sexual revolution. World War II is a real dividing line because of the mobility of the wartime experience. So men going off in the military, being away from parents for the first time, being away from a wife or a girlfriend, women being in a lot of same sex communities because the men were gone, right? It's important for uh, gay men and lesbian women to experience a degree of sexual freedom. So that that's part of it. What we have to really keep in mind is that when Hefner formulated Playboy, He really created a lifestyle magazine for the lifestyle he was interested in, for the lifestyle he wanted to live. So yes, there's that sexual element to it. But the reason why you don't see a lot of sort of rough and tumble, macho masculinity in Playboy is because that's not who Hefner was. But one of the ways in which a lot of readers and observers responded to Playboy in the fifties and early sixties is they said, finally, somebody is treating sexuality in a mature way, in a fun way. It's not degrading. It's not offensive. I mean, some people thought it was offensive, but a lot of people didn't. And another thing that Hefner did that was different is the way he portrayed women's sexuality in the playmate centerfolds. And that was, you know, it seems like a cliche now, but it was really important at the time this idea of the girl next door that a decent, all American, unmarried woman could be sexual. And we don't have to disrespect her for that. In fact, we can celebrate her. That's really significant in the 1950s because you cannot find that message of women's sexuality pretty much anywhere else, when there were portrayals of women's sexuality in popular culture that veered from the mainstream expectation of monogamous married sexuality, when there were portrayals like that, those women in pop culture movies and things like that, they were punished. Literally at the end of of a movie in which a woman sexually transgressed, she often ended up dead. Her character often ended up dead as a punishment. So the fact that Playboy was portraying, quote, good girls in a sexual way and saying this is okay was actually really groundbreaking. And a lot of readers, men and women, responded positively to that because they did not see that message anywhere else.
1: Prior to seeing Playboy for the first time, Bob Guccione claimed to have never read any men's magazine. But he knew an opportunity when he saw one even if that meant duplicating the competition in literally every aspect. When he showed a mock-up that he made of an issue of a magazine called Penthouse to a coworker, the man responded, Bob, it looks like a total copy. Bob's response was to assure him that, quote, there's always room for two. He even went to pitch meetings with investors holding an issue of Playboy in his hand, saying, just imagine this with the name Penthouse on it. After three years of hearing no, Bob went 700 pounds into debt to print the first issue of his magazine himself in 1965. It sold out in two days. While the similarities are obvious, the content in Penthouse was a little rawer and less polished than Playboy. The writing was grittier, and the girls looked less like versional co-eds. Bob's artistic eye lent itself well to nude photography. Joe Brooks, an art director who helped him create the magazine, once told Rolling Stone, Bob used light like a master painter, but he has an incredibly dirty mind. It's a beautiful combination. The magazine also, like Playboy, printed reviews of various burlesque acts and exotic live shows. That's how Bob met Kathy Keaton, an entrepreneurial dancer who would become his eventual business partner and the woman he would leave his second wife Muriel for. Along with his big picture vision and talent for lurid photography, Bob possessed a sensational marketing genius. He supposedly paid for lists of mailing addresses for priests, parliament members, and anyone who would be pissed off enough to report him for violating postal laws against dispersing obscene images. Then he sent all of those people pamphlets full of half-naked women. He was fined a hundred pounds, and headlines like sex maniac denounced in parliament followed him everywhere. But the resulting media frenzy only fueled penthouse subscriptions like a wildfire. Years later, the Gooch, as he would come to be called, claimed that he never set out to compete with Heff. He told Rolling Stone in 1973, I'm not trying to imitate him. The sort of thing I'm going after now is what I've always wanted. And it's true that the two men couldn't be more different in demeanor. Heff was the literal life of the party, while the Gooch was a reclusive workaholic who preferred a quiet dinner in the company of a few close friends, like Andy Warhol or a few of NASA's astronauts. Yet, that certainly didn't mean that Bob lacked aspirations after what he saw Hugh possessed, as was clear when Bob built his own Penthouse Club in London. It also didn't mean that Bob would be the less vocal combatant in the fight that was brewing. In fact, it almost seemed like Bob couldn't keep his mouth shut about Playboy. When Penthouse eventually made a move into the United States market in 1969, Guccione took out a full-page ad in the New York Times that was a picture of a Playboy bunny caught in a rifle's crosshairs. The caption said, We're going rabbit hunting. Future ads portrayed Playboy as old and outdated, and one included the bunny eagerly reading a copy of its competitor with the caption, Penthouse envy? At one point, Guccione even publicly predicted when Penthouse would surpass Playboy in readership, saying, We are increasing by the rate of 350% each year without fail, Simple mathematics show that we shall overtake them by September 1974. He called Playboy unrealistic and hypocritical, and he even took shots at Hefner personally, once saying, Playboy projects the sexual identity of Hugh Hefner, which is the closest thing to a closet queen that I know of. Bob Guccione, I've always said, one of
3: the great things he's contributed, and if it weren't a porn magazine, Uh, would get more credit as a great art photographer. But he invented the whole soft focus thing. He invented this whole gauzy, you know, photographs of naked women and this point of view of a voyeur, you know, versus you know, what was happening in the other magazines where the girls were looking right at the camera and, they, and he was trying to make them look American. And, you know, where, where Guccioni, he started, here's a picture of a girl wearing a, a guy's sweater and it's obviously they just got done doing it. It was a whole different level of, of sexuality and of, of eroticism. I mean, he should be considered as a great art photographer of erotica, except the venue in which he was published isn't
1: really respected in that world. Playboy wasn't exactly shaking in its boots. The magazine was closing in on its highest ever sales record, 7 million Playboys in a single month. Penthouse tried to make a play for Playboy's legitimacy as a lifestyle publication by similarly printing sophisticated contributions from the likes of Philip Roth and Joyce Carol Oates. But the bunny had been busy becoming a cultural touchstone, featuring writers like Vladimir Nabokov, Kurt Vonnegut, Hunter S. Thompson, and Margaret Atwood. Heff's own Playboy philosophy column proselytized progressive values, advocating for gay rights, legalization of marijuana, and abortion. His clubs broke ground in terms of allowing white and black performers to share a stage. And in 1962, the widely acclaimed Playboy interview series began with Roots author Alex Haley documenting conversations with the likes of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X., and the founder of the American Nazi Party. Now, given its underdog position, it makes sense that Penthouse would launch the opening salvo in this carnal confrontation. The Gooch needed to make good on all of his braggadocio about turning Heff's beloved floppy-eared pet into a good-luck charm to hang from one of the many pieces of jewelry around his neck. And that meant making a big splash. For a while, it was generally held that First Blood in the Pubic Wars, as they would eventually be called, was drawn in 1970. When Penthouse's February issue featured a Dutch beauty pageant winner's full bush. As Bob Guccione famously put it, quote, it was the right time. Pussies are in, breasts are out. And he was right. Penthouse sales were steadily climbing, despite a number of small towns banning it from local newsstands. 1970 may have been the start of the Pubic Wars, but technically, The first curly strands of glorious groin hair to ever grace the pages of a mainstream magazine appeared in Playboy 11 years earlier. It wasn't in a full spread, but rather part of a review of a bottomless and topless club in Cicero, Illinois, that featured photos of a woman working there with her pubes in full view. The fact that this was a big deal may seem absurd in light of the endless reservoir of naked sex organs the internet provides us with today although one could argue that pubic hair is still controversial given the fact that wax cracks and shaved short hairs seem to be more of the rule than the exception in modern-day porn. The image in question was only an inch high and had been altered slightly to make it look like the hair could actually be part of the woman's underwear, so Playboy wasn't exactly jumping in with both feet on publishing full-frontal nudity. Also, keep in mind that this was still a decade and a half before strip club magnate Larry Flint made it his mission to put every erotic act imaginable into the pages of his magazine, Hustler. After it was published, FBI agents came knocking on the Playboy office's doors, demanding to examine the doctored originals, but the agents couldn't tell the image had been edited and let the publishers off the hook. In 1969, still one year prior to Penthouse's big gamble, Playboy once again put pubes in print, When it published another live show review, which included several pictures of dancer Paula Kelly, leaving very little to the imagination. This time, the blowback didn't come from the government, though. It came from readers. And it wasn't just about what Kelly was showing. A former editor recalled to Rolling Stone, the only readers who commented on it were Black readers. They wrote in and said, So when you want to show pubic hair, you have to show a Black woman? They were outraged. When Guccione made his move in 1970, he declared loudly and clearly that full frontal photos were the future of his business. In response, Heff waged a campaign of coolness, barely acknowledging Guccione's existence. Sometimes, though, silence speaks volumes in unintended ways. Despite his non-reaction to Guccione publicly, the January 1971 issue of Playboy had Heff's approval to include a blonde tuft of Liv Lindland's pubic hair and the following year he signed off on a full frontal shot of playmate Marilyn Cole. Even body cartoonist Leroy Neiman was asked to add pubic hair to his illustrations. Hefner swore up and down that the decisions had nothing to do with Guccione, pushing the envelope slightly further. He claimed that he was influenced by the shifting attitudes of the time, pointing to the release of possibly the most widely known pornographic film ever made, 1972's Deep Throat. Have you
0: one of my cigarettes, will you, hon? Mind if I smoke while you're eating?
2: No, not at
1: all. Penthouse is trying to make promotional mileage out of the notion that they were involved and are making the decision. Quite simply, at that point, their circulation was so small that their influence on us was comparable to screws, Hefner noted in the 1973 interview. Yet, in reality, Penthouse had increased its readership to 10 times what it was when it originally reached the United States. Hefner was also talking out of both sides of his mouth, apparently, as he had already opened up a new front in the conflagration by purchasing We, oui, a French lad's mag that Hefner revamped in 1972 as a way of slicing into Penthouse's home market in Europe. Neither
2: company was ready to back down. I think the cultural changes were driving both of them. I think the rivalry between them and this competition for how explicit should we go would have been completely irrelevant if american culture wasn't also so dramatically changing in terms of acceptable sexuality loosening of sexuality right what we call the sexual revolution that is happening in so many different ways by the early and mid 1970s, that I kind of feel like the competition or rivalry between Hefner and Guccioni, I feel like they're both being swept along by that. Now, Guccioni is wanting to move forward because of these cultural changes, right? He sees this as an opportunity. Hefner, I think, feels a lot of pressure because of Penthouse to become more explicit. But that's both of those things are happening within the context of a culture that is dramatically sexualizing. This rivalry between Hefner and Guccione is really driving that industry, but even without Guccione, Hefner would have had to respond. American culture was surpassing Playboy in terms of its sexual explicitness. And the ways in which even pornographic material was becoming so much more widely acceptable, and it's it's something that's really important not only to this part of the conversation but also in thinking about Hefner's own personal ethics, his personal sexual life, uh, uh, allegations that have been made against him uh, about assault, you know, sort of whatever your angle you're coming at it from. It's really important to understand that. Hefner was very protective of the conservatism of his magazine. He wanted there to be a kind of innocence about the sexuality portrayed in Playboy. He held on to that pretty much for the rest of his life.
1: Guccione pushed the envelope even further and pioneered several firsts in the world of porno pictorials. This included the clitoris, erect penises, threesomes, and lesbians, which the goosh expressed a particular interest in. Playboy responded in the only way it knew how, by featuring two topless women holding each other on the cover next to the caption, Sappho, stunning portraits of women in love one month, and a woman masturbating on the cover the month after that. One story has it that during the height of the hostilities, Heff and the Gooch crossed paths once and only once, while attending a private viewing of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. The way Bob told it, Hefner snubbed him with a curt handshake. I never had any bad feelings toward him. He did toward me, with some justification because we were making serious inroads into his territory, Bob once asserted. And the truth is, he wasn't totally wrong. In addition to The Beast with two backs, Guccione also doubled down on strong editorial, running popular investigative pieces on topics like organized crime and the mistreatment of Vietnam War vets. Despite costing a whopping $2, Penthouse was storming the industry's beachhead. By 1977, the two magazines were neck and neck, with monthly sales for both at around $4.5 million. Meanwhile, it seemed like Playboy didn't really have the stomach to go to the same lengths as its competitor. Or at least its advertisers didn't. In fact, two years earlier, Hefner signaled a move away from the filthier content, telling his team they, quote-unquote, would not go down the road of imitating our imitators. Gentlemen, we have lost our compass, he said. So this could have been where our story ends. The people had spoken, and demands for filth were flying from their lips. Guccione had made good on his David and Goliath promise of making room for two. And now that Pandora's box was open, Penthouse was more than happy to bring all the covered-up fleshy bits out into the light of day, courting greater and greater controversy along the way. You have to understand, there's always this myth,
3: uh, like, oh, you can't show this or that on the newsstand. And somehow this was coming from... Free speech laws, or the government, or or, 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 or some outside a- agency. When well, the truth is. That the industry self-regulates and this was what distributors were comfortable with putting on the newsstand and that included lots of boobs but no bush okay and the first time you know there was a little pubic hair show, it was conceived shocking because don't forget pornography was available you could still go to your adult bookstore and get some stuff that was outrageously filthy and and all all of, all of these things we're talking about something you can go buy at a newsstand these were newsstand magazines there are mass Circulation magazines—they were selling millions of copies a month. They were as popular as, you know, Rolling Stone and Time. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, they played in that league anyway. Playboy didn't want to go there, but the second Penthouse started getting steamier, their sales went up. And what's Playboy to do? And you know, there's a, there's a cultural tendency that everything that was, that was shocking—if it makes money—eventually just gets co-opted by the mainstream. Right. So maybe it was shocking to see a pair pair of boobs in nineteen fifty-six, maybe maybe not so much in nineteen sixty-six, but seeing the pubic hair in nineteen seventy-two was. And now again, I turn on Netflix and it's all I freaking see. I'm watching a cowboy movie. I'm watching, you know, you know, a movie about the, the British monarchy, and oh my god, here are some boobs. <laughs> you know, I mean Bob Gucci kinda of loses his mind, and that's a really important part of the story, is that he's completely unhinged. Right? And this is why his is a rags to riches to rags story because he starts to lose his mind and he starts to putting in like women urinating in his magazine because he's getting so interested in hotting it up and hotting it up. And it's the magazine selling, but his advertisers all bail on him. So by the time it's over, there are no more cigarette ads, there are no more automobile ads, there are no more liquor ads, because everybody's running in the opposite direction from Bob Guccione, who's getting fetishy and weird and doing really kinky stuff in his magazine. And Playboy's able to maintain because, I mean, of course, the girls are beautiful and the editorial content's terrific, and he's not go- going, he's not crossing that line. you know, He's kind of going up to the line, but not crossing it at, at all. And, and it holds up. And the Playboy brand holds up because it still represents some sort of you know, kayfabe sophistication.
1: In September 1984, Penthouse printed its best-selling issue ever, mainly thanks to the fact that it contained naked pictures of Vanessa Williams, the first black woman to ever be crowned Miss America. Now, a hugely important detail here is that just like with Playboy's inaugural edition that featured Marilyn Monroe, Penthouse never got Williams' permission to print the pictures. Like Monroe, Williams had done the photo shoot several years earlier, before winning the beauty pageant and the photographer had also promised that he would obscure her face enough that she would be unrecognizable. Guccione had bought the rights after Hefner actually turned them down, not out of any moral queasiness over the fact that they were unauthorized. The photo shoot included a depiction of Williams engaging in a simulated sex act with another woman. And a Playboy spokesperson said, with all the self-awareness of a sea cucumber, that the magazine did not use lesbian material, even though the publication had done that exact thing about a decade before. As a result of the pictures being published, Williams was asked to step down as Miss America. And as if that wasn't controversial enough, that same issue of Penthouse included the mainstream debut of adult film star Tracy Lords, who, it would later be revealed, was 15 years old at the time. She had shown the magazine a fake ID, but despite what appears to be a near total lack of oversight, ethical or otherwise, Guccione's star was ascendant with Forbes naming him in its 1985 list of the 400 richest people in America. That same year, Hefner had a massive stroke, which would eventually lead to his daughter from his first marriage, Christie, taking over as Playboy CEO. However, the winds of fate are fickle, and the next 20 years would prove to be rough chop for both Penthouse and Playboy. New challengers had entered the fray, including magazines like Gallery, Coke, and the aforementioned Hustler, which were all willing to get their hands coated in as much lube and bodily secretions as necessary. Also, video, cable TV, and eventually the internet would offer whole new worlds of erotic self-gratification. But generally speaking, readers had started to grow weary of the quote-unquote relentless focus on sex. Or so former Playboy editorial director Arthur Kretschmer told the Washington Post in 1986. Playboy's circulation at that point had dropped to 3.4 million, less than half of what it sold at its peak. Penthouse fell to 2.7 million copies sold monthly. Penthouse's problem wasn't just that it had gone hardcore. Bob Guccione may not have been the boisterous bon vivant that Hugh Hefner was, but by no means should that suggest that he lacked a taste for the finer things in life. In the mid-70s, he had meticulously designed and built what at that point was the largest private residence Manhattan had ever seen, with over 30 rooms, which by the early 2000s cost $5 million a year to maintain. And he filled his home with priceless works of art from Degas, Van Gogh, and Picasso. His interests were very eclectic, too. The Gooch wanted to embark on a career in film, not adult entertainment, but rather serious drama. So in 1979, he released the film Caligula, a gritty retelling of the life of the famously hedonistic Roman emperor, written by the immensely talented Gore Vidal, and featuring Helen Mirren, Malcolm McDowell, and Peter O'Toole.
2: They spoke of it first in whispers. Then it took the media by storm.
3: Password.
1: Scrooge. so be it. It just so happens that it also included graphic scenes of incest, bestiality, oral sex, and fisting. Guccione also had a healthy connection to science. At various points, he was funding experiments in the genetic engineering, as well as a team of 82 researchers from around the world, working on a way to make infinite free energy from water. He had a mind for other unique ventures as well, including building an Atlantic City casino and partnering with Muhammad Ali on a venture to sell powdered milk in the Middle East. The only problem is, despite his major success with Penthouse, everything else Bob touched seemed to fall apart. Many of his other magazines struggled, and he was facing a hefty tax bill. Caligula cost him more than $17.5 million to produce and was a total flop. The casino, which cost $160 million, put him under FBI scrutiny for possible mob ties and in the end, never even opened. By the dawn of the 21st century, the Gooch and Penthouse were both completely bankrupt, and he would soon be pushed out of the upstart challenger company he had started.
3: Playboy had been so successful for so long that they didn't recognize the possibility of a threat. They didn't recognize any any kind of competition. And uh, I was doing my own thing. I was doing what I was doing because I had nothing to lose. You see, I could could move along and advance and progress in my own way uh, where Playboy couldn't because Playboy was locked into a situation governed and controlled by its advertisers. I didn't have any advertisers when I came into the market, Mm -hmm. so I had nobody to bow to or kowtow to. Mm -hmm. I did what I felt was necessary what was right.
1: Shakespeare once wrote, Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. So maybe it should come as no surprise that Heff and the Gooch actually found themselves as allies at one point in their mutual darkest hour. In 1986, U.S. Attorney General Edwin Meese worked with Reverend Donald Wildman, head of the National Federation for Decency, to draft a letter to 13 of the biggest drug and convenience store chains in the country, The Mies Commission letter threatened to label the companies as pornographers, unless they pulled adult magazines from their shelves. Playboy and Penthouse came together to file a lawsuit, successfully blocking publication of The Blacklist, as they called it. But this is where these two paths diverged, as the tides began to turn. Playboy saw the writing on the wall, Less overtly perverted publications like FHM and Maxim were eating away at an audience that had become a little overwhelmed by the levels of literal urine and ejaculate evident in Penthouse's pages. So Playboy moved ever softer until December 2014, when its website, and a year later the magazine itself, removed all nudity entirely. Its monthly sales had shriveled to 800,000. But the strategy panned out somewhat, as website views increased by 400%. The magazine, of course, went back to printing nudes not long after. And to this day, Playboy as a brand and Hefner as a man still have cachet among dilettantes as symbols of elegance, hipness, and cool. In both of their minds, Bob and Hugh were more than just pornographers. Hefner saw himself as a force for social change and the best hang ever. Guccione saw himself as an underestimated artist and remained a prolific painter throughout his life. Neither one fully came up with the idea for their businesses themselves. It's probably the least startling revelation in this whole story to say that the legendary lust that these two men possessed had a dark side to it. Hef and the Gooch both had reputations for sleeping with the women they photographed, keeping harems of girlfriends around. It was even said that Bob had his wife Kathy's approval to do so. And there's a theory out there that she personally selected April Warren to become Bob's next wife as she was dying of breast cancer in 1997. Both men have been accused of manipulating and coercing women into sex and or drug use. But Bob's undoing didn't come from some lurid Me Too moment. It was his total willingness to do anything to win, no matter how debasing it was to himself, or really to the people whose pictures he took, that tipped the scales back against Bob. The Gucci's victory in the pubic wars only lasted briefly before the average Joe started realizing that reading a full-blown porn magazine in public is kind of a weird look, no matter how good the articles are, and nothing tops high-speed internet in the privacy of your own home. Guccione's less-than-thrifty nature, precarious management structure, and piss-poor investing skills certainly did not help the situation either. In fact, Part of the reason Penthouse fell apart so fantastically was that Bob would largely hire close family for important positions, like his own father as the company's accountant, but reacted viciously to dissent or suggestions for improvement. Near the end of his life, Bob was estranged from four out of five of his own children. One of them was his son, Bob Jr., who Bob Sr. helped to create Spin, a music magazine meant to take on Rolling Stone. Bob Sr. pulled out of the venture when the new publication initially struggled, and then cut off all ties with Jr. once Spin started to succeed on its own. In 1989, Vanessa Williams told a reporter that she thought the people responsible for sharing her nude photos with the world would die a slow and painful death. And in a way, she was right. A little over 20 years later, Bob Guccione, the penthouse progenitor who once bragged that he personally trimmed and styled his model's pubic hair, died after a drawn-out battle with throat cancer. He had lost everything. Hefner was the victor, his dynasty secured in the hands of his daughter, Christie and his son from his second marriage, Cooper, who has since taken over as Playboy's figurehead. But almost as the final signal of the amoral depravity that lurked deep within him, just as much as it did in the gooch, in 1992, Heff bought the crypt directly next to the one where Marilyn Monroe was laid to rest at the Pierce Brothers Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. He was buried there in 2017, next to the very first woman he ever exposed to the world, again, without her consent. Heffner told the LA Times before he died, spending eternity next to Marilyn Monroe is too sweet to pass up.
2: There's no question that men like Hefner and Guccione, and especially Hefner, have absolutely influenced modern American sexual culture. But it depends on who you ask in terms of what their influence was. A more conservative, particularly religious perspective, would say that men like Hefner and Guccione have contributed to the decline of American society that the changes of the 60s, particularly those regarding gender and sexuality, have been an absolute harm. Some feminists would say that men like Hefner have contributed to the continual degradation and objectification of women, which certainly remains a significant part of American sexual culture today. But there are a lot of people who would say both men's pursuit of anti-censorship and free speech have been a, a positive good in American culture. That the loosening of sexual mores has been a, more helpful than harmful and certainly you know sort of carrying the, the, the mantle of freedom of speech benefits everybody even if we don't always agree with or approve of what they're saying. There are so many ways in which this wildly influential magazine helped move American culture in a more liberalized, progressive direction. And so I think there's no question that Hefner and secondarily Guccione, but both of them contributed to uh, shifting so many things in American culture. It really just depends on your perspective if you think that that's a positive or a negative or some combination of the two.
1: This episode was written by Pete Musto with help from James Levine and Ben Austin-Docampo. It was also edited by Pete Musto. Our executive producer is show creator Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you.